Well, it's great that you everybody came out on kind of a nasty night, but we're thankful for the day the Lord has made, right? <laughs> I'm trying to tell myself, be thankful. Winter's coming, be thankful. <laughs> um, so on your table, you've got handouts, um, if everybody got one. And I chose the topic, just made the most sense, Choices and Consequences, First Night's Chapter. Um, the theme is really very straightforward and simple. Can you hear, Pam? I'm <clears throat> Okay. Um, rejection of the Lord's rule in our lives results in God's judgment and eternal punishment. But submission brings redemption and eternal life. Um, so choices and consequences, I really, well, good. We're starting at a good time, so I don't want this to go over. It's, I practice to get it down, but hopefully. Um, we make lots of choices every day. Some of them are not terribly important, like what we're going to wear. But others can affect our lives in significant ways, and um, I recently had my annual physical and was told that my A1C which is a three-month average of blood sugar, uh, basically, was too high. And pre-diabetic is what the doctor called it. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I don't have a history that I know of, and it has to be related to my intake and my non-exercise program. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I was really appalled. I didn't really realize. I mean, I'm not a big sugar-holic, but... I knew I needed to lose a few pounds and probably exercise more, but pre-diabetic, wow. So I decided I'm not going there, hopefully, and trying to achieve better health. The point is that there are times when we need to take a good look at ourselves and make changes. And tonight's chapter gives us opportunity to do just that in our spiritual lives. Um, 1 Samuel 8 reveals Israel. And it reveals us. In chapter 4 of Samuel, we've already studied, we saw their poor decision to trust in the ark of God instead of seeking God himself, and it led to disastrous outcomes for them. And last week in chapter 7, we saw how Israel came together to um, truly repent of their idolatry. They asked Samuel to cry out to God to save them from the Philistines, and the Lord won a great victory for them. Territory was restored. There was peace. But now, many years later, our story takes a much different turn and is a sharp contrast. Israel's pattern of apostasy is repeated. <clears throat> um, in the first five verses, well, first of all, let me remind you of 1 Samuel 3, 19 and 20, where we read that none of Samuel's words fell to the ground, and also that he was well established from Beer to Beersheba to Dan um, as prophet of the Lord. So people trusted him, and everything that he said, you know, came true. In this chapter, Samuel is old, and he has made his sons judges over Israel, um, in Beersheba. Actually, this is the first hereditary appointment of a judge in Israel. Gideon had been asked by the people to 
um, appoint his son and his grandson to be judges. And he says in Judges 8, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Samuel's sons, Joel and Abijah, both have the word Yahweh in their name. Their names mean Yahweh is God and my father is Yahweh. And they are not living up to their names. In verse 3, we see they've turned aside after gain, taking bribes, perverting justice. We don't know about Samuel's parenting. We don't know the time frame or if his sons are just too far away from him to monitor because Beersheba is in the far south of Judah. Um, We do know from chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, he gave a farewell address and the people testify, people of Israel testify that Samuel had not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. His sons are responsible for their sin and they will pay for them. So application-wise for us, we have to not judge Samuel and not judge ourselves if our kids are not following the Lord. If we are faithful to teach and to model and to um, pray for our children, then we have to wait on the Lord's timing for his Holy Spirit's conviction and their repentance. So in verses 4 and 5, uh, the elders of, of Israel, which they're the leaders, uh, usually one elder at least, I guess, but at least one elder from each of the 12 tribes. So these elders come to Samuel, and instead of asking that his sons be removed, they ask for a hereditary kingship, appoint us a king. Their rationale is he's old, his sons do not walk in his ways. But in their request is the phrase, like all the nations. Notice they don't ask Samuel to go to the Lord about this matter. They don't ask for his sons to be removed. They don't want to know what the Lord has for them. They just want what they want. And that's like us a lot of times. It's like me sometimes. In verses 6 through 9, now we're talking about rejection of their sovereign ruler, the Lord. And this request, actually, it is really a demand. This does not please Samuel. In fact, a more literal translation is the request is evil. It's evil in Samuel's eyes. The Lord is Israel's king, and Samuel serves him as judge. The proposal displaces the Lord's direct rule over the nation. This is a serious offense against God. It is also a foreshadowing of the rejection of Christ because in Acts um, chapter 7, verses 51 to 53, he says, um, Stephen, Stephen is giving a sermon just before they stone him. And Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. 
Stephen had guts, I'll tell you. <laughs> and no wonder they <laughs> they stoned him after that, you know, strong statement. But it was the truth. Additionally, their demand is a major social and political change for Israel. Uh, the elders' demand is a major change for Israel because the elders were the people's responsibility or representatives. That would end with a king. The king would be in charge and determine the state of affairs, even their worship. Now, the priesthood is well established, and it will continue for some time, well, through the end. Not that the priests were always upright, but um, future kings um, will, soon, will soon learn about abuse of power by the king in the priesthood area as well, and future kings will determine if and when idols are torn down or put back up in the land. <clears throat> the elders' demand must seem like a rejection of Samuel himself. But instead of responding to the elders, Samuel goes to the Lord in prayer. He's a faithful intercessor. The Lord's answer is to obey them in all they say. And this really seems rather surprising in the beginning, but I would like, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17 with me. Um, I'll read verses 14 through 20, but I'm going to skip a couple in the center. We were talking about this at our table, so I don't know if you guys were, but maybe this will clear up some things for, for us. Um, when you come to the land, this is 1714, where I'm at. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And then let me skip down to verse 18. And when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. So the, the copy had to be approved by the priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." So the type of kingdom or king and monarchy that um, God had in mind was the covenant relationship, the sovereign covenant relationship. Um, okay, let me find my place. <laughs> Up to this time... Um, in First Samuel now, chapter 8. Up to this time, all decisions in Israel had been made by casting lots to determine God's will. 
But that will be changing because the word, um, because the king will appoint people. So in, and the elders use the word appoint in, in 5b. Uh, they don't even specify a fellow Israelite. They're clearly leaving God out of it. It's not the monarch that is the problem. It is trusting in monarchy instead of God. And that's the evil. And both Psalm 118 and Psalm 146 clearly tells us to put our trust not in man or princes, but in the Lord. Can you repeat what that was, that text? Sorry? What was the psalm? The reference for that, Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9, and Psalm 146, 3. The Lord reassures Samuel that they are not rejecting him. And in verse 8, the Lord says that from, that from the day they brought him out of Egypt, even to today, they have forsaken him and served other gods. And the book of Judges and Ruth clearly illustrates this truth. Israel suffered the consequences of famine, constant threat from enemies, and eventually exile. So the instruction Samuel receives is to obey their voice, but solemnly warn them of the reality of how a king will reign. Now the reality of a king. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people, it says. Well, he may have shared how the Lord viewed this request as rejection. It doesn't tell us. Um, but his main task here is to recite the customary rights of a king so they fully understand the consequences of their request. Although they had examples all around them from the Canaanites, Israel must know the cost. The phrase, he will take, appears at least six times in the verses and the word appoint twice. So the king will take, take, take. Their sons will be charioteers, horsemen, runners. Runners are in front of the royal chariot. They're bodyguard types that run before the royal chariot. Sons will also be appointed as commanders and captains, and thousands will be drafted for battle. Others will be laborers in the fields, makers of war implements and chariot equipment. Daughters will be servants in the palace, the best of their fields, vineyards, and orchards, and a tenth of their agriculture and flocks will be subject to arbitrary use by the king. We should appreciate the fact that Israel has already, is already required to tithe to support the sanctuary and the priesthood. And so this additional 10% tax will be a burden on the people for sure. Also included are the male and female servants and the best of their livestock. And just a note about the phrase young men in there in verse 16, because it really seems kind of odd because it's followed by donkeys. And commentators explain that it may apply to young calves or any young animal. And that makes sense because it goes with donkeys. I mean, he's already talked about the young men, the sons. So, um, <clears throat> In verse 17, the context translates as slaves, the people themselves, rather than just subjects. The people will be conscripted as slaves, and all that the people have will be subject to confiscation by a king. 
Samuel's telling them about the predictable abuse of power because they're imperfect human beings. I was wondering to myself, okay, exactly where did these specific things happen later with Israel's kings? So in 1 Kings chapter 5, Solomon, David's son, is building the temple. And he drafts 180,000 laborers for the timber and the stone that are required, and plus 3,300 officers to supervise. And then he has to pay the king of Tyre, Hiram, who gives him the lumber, the cedar and the cypress stuff, and the stone, um, oh, and the craftsmen, because the craftsmen came from Tyre and you know, did all of the ornate work in the temple. He has to pay this king every single year 20,000 cores of wheat as food and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. And I'm like, okay, what's a core? So when I translate it, a core is equal to six bushels of dry measure, so times that by 20,000, and 61 gallons of liquid measure. So times that by 20,000. That's a significant amount of wheat and oil. So the people are giving of their agriculture for sure. Verse 18 is a, possible, is a warning of possible oppression by a future king. You will cry out because of your king, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Samuel knew what he was talking about. Israel had many wicked and oppressive kings. If we go to 1 Kings 12, I just think this is too important to leave out. I, um, the people told Solomon's son. Okay, so we have Saul and then David and then Solomon. And now his son, Rehoboam is his name, the next king. They tell him, they go to him right after he's made king. And they say, your father made our yoke heavy. So obviously, Solomon made their yoke heavy. They asked him to lighten it. Well, he took counsel with the older men first, and then he took counsel with the young men, and he decided to go with the young men. And their response was, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Immediately after this, Israel divided into the northern and southern kingdoms. And this is only about a hundred years after the elders come to Samuel. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Because it was right after Rehoboam became king. <clears throat> In verses 19 to 20 we read, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us to fight our battles. So they are not dissuaded by Samuel's warnings, but they are demanding a king. And in these verses, we notice that the um, plural and possessive pronouns of we, us, and our are used a total of six times. So they're clearly self-centered and stubborn. They will not allow God's wisdom to lure them away from the folly they are eager to commit. 
in their own eyes, they want to be first like the nations. It will give them cohesion as a nation. It will give them status in the world. The Lord and Samuel both use the word reign. Two different times it's there, once by the Lord, once by Samuel. But the people use the word judge two times, in verse 5 and verse 20. I suppose it seems less autocratic. They are replacing the Lord's reign over them. And third, um, to go out, obviously the king will lead them into battle. And um, at this time, the Philistines and the Ammonites are still a threat. But it's amazing because last week in chapter 7, verse 13b said, The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So he has been and still is protecting Israel from the Philistines, and they want a king to go out and fight their battles. So they aren't trusting the Lord at all. So when Samuel repeated all the words of the people to the Lord, he is told to obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel dismisses them to their cities because he's going to wait for guidance from the Lord. The sovereign God of the universe will have his way and orchestrate the process, just like he always does. In granting their demand for a king, the Lord is not approving an absolute monarchy for Israel, but he was intended to inaugurate a covenant relationship with the king and the people, as we saw in Deuteronomy 17. Israel's stupidity and stubbornness only make things difficult for them. It does not preempt the Lord's plan to redeem his people. He will use every situation for his glory, and he does, through the promise to King David in 2 Samuel 7:16, Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. And this kingship, of course, is Jesus who will first redeem his people by his own death. That brings us to the real message in tonight's lesson. We have each have a choice to make as to whether or not we will accept Jesus as our king to rule our life. Now, um, on the table, I have some little booklets that when Jeff first came here, he bought a lot of these. Um, they're really great, and um, I've used it quite a bit of times with kids, etc. They've revised the booklet, and so the handout that I had made doesn't quite fit the booklet exactly now. So I'm just going to go through the booklet with you, <laughs> and we'll be very brief. But I'm hoping that you personally will consider who your choice of king is in your life if you haven't already. And if you have, then familiarize yourself with this book and share it with somebody that you're praying for. I think that's the best use of it. <clears throat> um, so, number one. Everybody on page one? God is the loving ruler of the world, and he made the world. He made us rulers of the world under him. 
You can see the picture there of the crown and the world. Um, but is that the way it is now? And the scripture verses are there that are key to explain that point. I won't go through them. But Number two, we all reject the ruler, God, by trying to run our own life, our own way, without him. But we fail to rule ourselves or society or the world. That's obvious today. <laughs> what will God do about this rebellion? Number three, just reminding us that there is none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned. Three, God won't let us rebel forever. God's punishment for rebellion is death and judgment. God's justice sounds hard. But, on page four, because of his love, God sent his son into the world, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus always lived under God's rule, and yet by dying in our place, he took our punishment and brought forgiveness. Christ died for sins once for all. But that's not all. Number five, God raised Jesus to life again as the ruler of the world. Jesus has conquered death, gives new life, and will return to judge. So he is the king. Well, where does that leave us? Number six, there are two ways to live. Our way, rejecting the ruler God, trying to live our own life, our own way. The result is condemnation, death, judgment. Or God's way, submitting to Jesus as our ruler, relying on his death and resurrection. And the result is forgiven by God and given eternal life. Which of these represents the way you want to live? I think this can easily be used with a, a non-Christian by any one of us. We don't have to have all the answers and all the right words and all the verses. It's right there for us. For Christians, if you've already made the choice to believe and follow Christ, then remember what he's done for you and rejoice. God called Israel to be a people set apart for himself. And so also he has redeemed us and set us apart. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world like all the nations, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We need to try to cry out to God for a teachable spirit and the courage to be different or holy. In closing, um, we've seen how God set the stage for his redemption and recreation through Jesus. His reign is far better 
His rule is mercy and grace, freedom, inheritance, just judgment, and victory over every battle we could ever face, even death. Like the hymn, it's on the back of your sheets. And when I was thinking of the king take, take, taking, I knew there was a song, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Just plug that into Google, up they come, because my memory doesn't serve me well when I don't sing it too much. (laughs) Giveth more grace by Annie Flint. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He giveth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied sorrows, he multiplies peace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again.